Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have another awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Alex, who is a marine ecologist specializing in seaweed ecology. It's so awesome because seaweed's so awesome. Welcome to the show, Dr. Alex. Thanks so much, Amelia. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Hopefully starting with an easy-ish question, what is your job? Yeah, I can definitely answer that one. So my job at the University of the Sunshine Coast is a senior lecturer in biology. So I teach undergraduate students all about biology, all sorts of different types of biology. And I'm also a researcher at the university. I'm one of the lead researchers of the seaweed research group at USC. Cool. So seaweeds are pretty broad. Actually, can you start by defining what seaweed is? Because that's an interesting one. That's a really good question. And most people don't ask me that. They just kind of jump ahead and assume it's a plant. And it's not really like a plant. So seaweed's an interesting taxonomic group in between plants and protists. So they're a eukaryotic organism, which means they're an organism that has cells with nuclei. So we are another example of a eukaryotic organism. And they're a bit like plants in that they're mostly photosynthetic. So they can convert carbon dioxide and sunlight and some nutrients into sugar and oxygen, which are things we know and love and need. So they're super important as photosynthetic organisms. But they're a bit different to plants in that they lack a vascular system. And another example of a vascular system is our blood system. So that's a a system in our bodies that move minerals and gases and sugars all around through our bodies to all our tissues and cells that need it. And plants have a really similar system in that it it performs the same duty, but it's really different. So seaweeds are like plants, but they lack that vascular system. And they're mostly completely photosynthetic. So unlike a tree, for example, where you have most of the photosynthesis going on in the green leaves, most of the seaweed, this whole body or thallus, as we call a seaweed body in seaweed circles, is almost completely photosynthetic. So the whole seaweed can perform photosynthesis all the time. How they can get away without that vascular system because they don't need to pump things from or move things from one place to another? Yeah, they don't need to do it as much. That's exactly right. But when we talk about seaweeds, an important thing to point out is that there's more than 10,000 different species of seaweeds. So they're a really diverse group and they have lots of different strategies for kind of maintaining systems throughout their bodies. But yes, you're right, because all of the cells pretty much are capable of producing their own food through photosynthesis, it's less important that they have a system to pump sugars and waters throughout the entire thallus. Is there any particular kind of seaweed that you're more passionate about or focus on? There is actually. And, you know, if you ask different seaweed people, and there's, you know, there's a few of us now around the world and and even a growing number of us in Australia, most people have a really different answer to this. But my favourite are definitely the kelps. So the really large forest-forming seaweeds that really create forests underwater that are just like forests on the land. So some types of kelp can be really, really tall, up to 20 metres, and they grow really fast. And swimming through a kelp forest really feels exactly like you're flying through the air in a, in a land forest. 
And that's a feeling that I've found it very difficult to beat. It's a very cool experience um, diving or snorkeling through a giant kelp forest. I thoroughly recommend anyone who has the opportunity to do it, do it really soon, especially in Australia, because very sadly we've lost about 98% of our giant kelp forests um, down the southern coast of our country in, in my lifetime, which is not that long. So they're a really critically endangered type of kelp. But for that reason and, and for the amazing experience I've had swimming and diving in kelp forests, I'd have to go with giant kelp as my favourite. Where can we find the giant kelp these days then? So there's still some in Tasmania, but you have to go right down to the very bottom of the the Tasmanian island to find healthy giant kelp forests. But you also find it in the Northern Hemisphere. So around North America and and parts of the Canadian and Alaskan coast, you'll still find some really nice, healthy big kelp forests. Okay, so it might be a bit of a cold trip, but it's totally worth it. Absolutely. And make sure you pack a really nice, thick wetsuit. So I understand why forests on land would be disappearing because like we chop them down and we turn them into ikea furniture or whatever not mentioning any specific brands but you know mass-produced furniture we obviously don't do that to kelp do we so why are they going away so the main reason that we're losing kelp forests is because of ocean warming um things are getting a lot warmer very rapidly And that's a big problem in the sea in general. The rate of change of temperature in the ocean is much faster than what we're observing on the land. And that's because of a really fundamental difference between water and air. And that's a a physics difference. So the heat capacity of water is much higher than the heat capacity of air. So most of the extra heat that's being trapped by our altered upper atmosphere with an increased amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere most of the extra heat that's being trapped instead of radiated back out to space is actually being absorbed by the ocean. So the ocean is warming more quickly than the air. And what we're seeing is that the biological impacts of that warming are happening much faster in the sea than on the air. And unfortunately, the loss of kelp forests is is one of the most salient, one of the clearest examples of that change we see in marine ecosystems all over the world. So that's definitely the, the main problem. And, and there's direct impacts of warming that are bad for the kelp. So if it just gets too hot for them, they die. The same thing happens to us. When if we have a really severe heat wave, people die. And so the physiology of kelp is impacted by really warm waters. But also the indirect effects of warming are really important. So warmer waters might mean there are more herbivores around to eat the kelp. And that's definitely part of the problem in Tasmania, where we've lost those giant kelp forests. And another natural enemy that can become more abundant or more virulent in warmer waters are pathogens. So sometimes we see higher rates of disease that correspond with increases in water temperature. I have never thought about kelp getting a disease. Do you know what? I did my whole PhD on seaweed diseases and the fact that they're becoming more frequent and more severe as water temperatures warm. So we discovered a new disease in my PhD that affects a red seaweed. It's called bleaching disease, and it's a bacterial infection. And it's caused by bacteria that are always on the kelp. They're part of its normal healthy microbiome. But when the waters warm up, those same happy, normal, neutral bacteria can become pathogenic and start attacking the seaweed that they've always called home. That's got to be the basis of some sort of terrifying sci-fi film. Like, 
<laughs> they were my friends and then they got too hot and suddenly they oh. it's really interesting and it's something that could be happening in our own bodies all the time too so we're just like seaweeds in that we're not just ourselves made from our own cells. We're what we call a holobiont, which is a combination of our own cells, our own bodies, but also all the microbes that live on us and within us. So if you have a little look at your hand right now, Amelia, I'm sure it's very clean and that you've washed your hands recently and all those kinds of things, but you're actually covered in microorganisms and you can't see them. Most of them are doing absolutely nothing. They're just using you as a place to hang out for a while. But some of them are really, really important to you. Some of them are protecting you from pathogens. Some of them could become pathogens under different kinds of environmental conditions. But it's not just on your skin. You have microbes all through your mouth and most of your tissues in your whole body. And what we're starting to learn about these microbes is that they're very, very fundamentally important to our health and our development and not just our physical health, but also our mental health. And we now understand that the microbes in our gut can change and affect our mood uh, and our mental health, and that exercising and changing the chemistry in your muscles can affect not only your gut, but also your brain. And we're starting to really transform the way we think about health and disease. And interestingly, some of the research that we've been able to do on things like seaweeds has really helped us have a better understanding of our own microbiomes and think of ourselves as holobionts, which is really what we are. That is so mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool, isn't it? And what's really interesting is that in your body, you have at least as many microbial cells as human cells. And even more cool than that is that the activity of those microbial cells, which we can measure by looking at the number of genes they're expressing, is much, much higher than your own cells. So whatever they're doing in your body, they're doing it a lot more rapidly and a lot more often than your own cells. So isn't that really fascinating? It's fascinating. And also, I hope they're getting something really good out of this situation because I feel like we're kind of benefiting <laughs> They really are. They're getting a home and they need us to survive just as much as we need them. And so we've kind of evolved uh, with them for the whole time we've been humans living on this planet. And we really do rely on them in really fundamental ways. And the more we learn, the more ways we realize we need them. And it's interesting to think that some of the modern diseases that, that are emerging at the moment autoimmune diseases and things like that might be because we're sometimes too clean and we don't expose ourselves to enough microbes or enough microbes in natural ecosystems to kind of maintain a really healthy microbiome. And one thing I've been reading about recently, which makes me really happy actually, is that you know our microbiomes are not necessarily predetermined by our genes or the country that we're born in or anything like that. We can change our microbiomes throughout our life by changing our diets or our environments. So there are things, there are parts of our body that we can modify and improve upon if we need to, which I think is really cool. I'm sort of imagining it as another, like a lever that you can push in improving your whole of life and whole of health balance. Like if you understand how the microbiome works, you can help make that healthy, which will then have trickle on effects for you kind of thing. I'm waving my hands a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And, and learning more and more about this will just give us more and more information about things we can all do really proactively to boost our own mental and physical health without needing any drugs or, or anything like that. So it's really exciting to be part of this microbiome 
research. And again, a lot of the stuff we've been able to do with seaweed microbiomes has been quite informative and vice versa. And for example, we know that on our seaweeds that get diseases, they have a really different microbiome to the seaweeds that are the same species and live in the same environment that don't get diseases. So it's really a super interesting field of research at the moment for seaweeds, but also for people. And I think has a, a huge potential to really change not only the way we manage our own health, but also the way we manage the health of the environments that we live in. Because I think what we're going to discover is that that's really important and that we can't really be super healthy, functional host organisms in an unhealthy, completely artificial environment. We need a healthy, natural kind of environment to, to live in, thrive in. That's an amazing loop around from seaweed. That is so cool. It is cool. And seaweed does that to you, you know. You start looking at it from an ecological perspective and then you realise, you know, we can eat this stuff and it's really healthy for us and it's sustainable to grow and we can solve environmental problems by growing it in particular places and we can sell it. We can create new industries for people who need revenue from activities that are environmentally positive potentially down the track there's you know can offset carbon and nitrogen and and other problematic compounds and and really help companies do what they do in a much better more sustainable way so is it possible to grow a crop of seaweed in the same way that you would grow like a crop on land like how do you seed seaweed there's lots of different ways of doing it and what's interesting is that seaweed's actually one of the biggest crops in aquaculture in the world. We just don't do it here in Sydney, in Australia at all, uh, at least not to any impressive commercial scale at this point. That's really changing at the moment though and lots of people are interested in growing seaweed for lots of different reasons. But you can, you can grow it in, in all sorts of different ways and again it depends on the species that you're working with. Uh, and although it's a huge industry globally there's only a handful of species that are grown and most of those are grown what we would say vegetatively so seaweeds have usually really complicated life history cycles or life cycles and they have different stages and sometimes they reproduce sexually and sometimes they reproduce asexually depending on where in their life cycle they are and so what most seaweed farmers who are mostly based in Indonesia China and lesser in Japan and Korea they tend to fragment seaweed. So they'll grow a seaweed on a rope, put the rope out in the sea for a few weeks or a month or something like that, and then harvest it, but leave a little part of it in the rope. And so then once they've finished their harvest, they put the rope with that little fragment of seaweed still in it back out in the sea and it grows back. So it's an incredible, sustainable type of farming. It's a lot of work though. So if you've ever been to Nusa Lembongan or somewhere like that in Indonesia, you might have seen the seaweed farms. A lot of them disappeared because of the huge surge in tourism on that island and, and surrounding islands. But actually in COVID, a lot of the people who left seaweed farming to go into tourism jobs have gone back to seaweed farming because obviously there's not a whole lot of tourism at the moment. And so seaweed farming's been a real saviour for people who would otherwise be living well below the poverty line. And it's not super technical, but it's hard work, as is any kind of farming. So that's one way. Another way is to seed seaweed onto ropes. So you can get seaweed to reproduce either sexually or asexually and produce spores or tiny little microscopic propagules that then 
settle and attach onto roots or some other kind of substrate, some other kind of material, and then you can put that material back out into the sea and grow it off that. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's really cool. As I said, we don't do it much in Australia, but I do think that's changing and that people are going to start wanting to farm seaweed more. I do expect in the next 10 years or so, we will start to see seaweed farms popping up in Australia. Is there anything our listeners could do to encourage that? Like, is there, would an increased demand for a particular kind of product or something like that help grow the industry? How do we make it happen? Yes, it's a good question. It will be driven definitely initially by probably a fairly niche market. So already in Australia, you can start to buy a few products that have seaweed in them and that seaweed has been produced in Australia, but there's just a couple of really boutique producers at the moment. But yes, if you see any of those products then definitely buying them will absolutely help the industry develop. In terms of other things people can do, there's not really a whole lot more, but when you see the products pop up, buy them, support them, give them a try. There's some people making seaweed muesli bars down south. There's also pasta with seaweed in it. There's some really incredible seaweed flatbread. So what a lot of the seaweed producers are doing at this stage, this very early stage of, of the industry developing is partnering with chefs and restaurants and kind of developing really special and high value products that they can sell to customers. So if you do get an opportunity to try some seaweed, I really recommend that you can buy imported seaweed in the supermarkets already, but oftentimes the packaging is something that a lot of consumers don't want to buy. So there's a lot of plastics and things and they're grown in in places other than Australia. And I think Australian seaweeds probably have a really huge international market because we have a really good reputation for having fairly clean and healthy marine ecosystems here. So I think Australian grown seaweed will probably be a really superior product and something that Australians can really get behind as it starts to appear. I'm so excited by the idea of a seaweed muesli bar. I'm going to have to go find that one because that is so cool. It's an interesting one. It's like the seaweed and sweet products for me are not my favorite. For me, it's definitely a savory umami type of flavor. So I really enjoy the the breads and the pastas and things like that. And even just seaweed seasoning on on top of something. We have a really wonderful nutritionist uh, working in the, the seaweed research group at USC who uses it in recipes and cooking classes for students here in Australia, but also in the Pacific Islands. So teaching people how to incorporate seaweeds into their diet because it's overall a very healthy thing to include. Again, seaweed's not seaweed and that there's more than 10,000 different species and they're all really different, but most of them are really healthy to consume. And it's really wonderful hearing our amazing seaweed nutritionist and she's she's definitely more than a seaweed nutritionist but it's really wonderful hearing her talk about it so yes maybe I should hook you up with Libby for another interview about using seaweed in food Amelia we can run a cooking class on on the air an air cooking class she's amazing yeah I have a very specific question Mm -hmm. and I'm probably about to use a whole lot of technical terms completely inaccurately but on kelp usually like the smaller ones. So I'm thinking around like Southern Victoria. They have the little bubbles that grow on them that are full of air. 
or they appear to be like an air-like product thing. How do they develop? Like how does something underwater create its own little air bubble like that? That's a great question and not one that I've ever read up on. I can tell you the reason for those little bubbles. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) The reason that some seaweeds, and they're actually not true kelps, they're in a family of seaweeds called the fucales. So crayweed is one example of a a fucoid seaweed and sargassum is another one. And the purpose of the little bubbles is to hold up the thallus, so the body of the seaweed, in the water column so that they're not kind of hanging down on the bottom and and scouring and, and becoming damaged on the rocky reef that they're attached to. How it would form is just probably down to the differentiation of cells at a particular time in development. So most eukaryotic organisms, so organisms with true nuclei have a stage at which they could differentiate into different types of cells. So even though seaweeds, as I said at the beginning, are different to plants and that they don't have a vascular system and they tend not to have super differentiated cells, of course, this is biology and all the rules are broken all the time in lots of different ways. So they do have some differentiation of cells within a seaweed. And so some of them would be kind of allocated to that role at a particular time in their development. And I imagine that the air is absorbed from the water. So water has lots of dissolved air bubbles inside it, especially in the coastal zone where seaweeds tend to grow due to waves and wind and currents and things like that. So there are tiny little microscopic air bubbles in the water. And when needed, gas exchange can occur across seaweed cells like it can across most of our cells. I'm so glad you said all of that. And I definitely was talking about crayweed, as it turns out. I didn't know it had a name. Of course it has a name. Because I had some students ask me once, and that's a, I gave a much less technical but very similar answer, and I'm really, really glad. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's really good. I love the questions that students ask. They're really cool questions most of the time. They are. In this case, the students wanted to make me blush because... They were hoping they could make it something to do with sex and that that would like stop me and make me halt. And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) They do have a lot of sex though, seaweeds, especially crayweed. You know, there's male and females out there and they have eggs and sperm. And although it's all external and and there's a lot less, you know, music and bars involved, (laughs) it does does happen. And it's a bit gross to think about that for too long because there's a whole lot of weird organisms out there having sex in the water and you know we go swimming in that same water so it can get a bit gross if you if you ponder that for too long but at the same time like there's a whole lot of weird things happening with trees normally and bees and all sorts of stuff is going on so if you think about it too anthropomorphized anything a lot of it gets a bit weird it's true there's a lot of pollen and stuff and yeah if you you think about what pollen is for too long yeah you gross yourself out you're absolutely right can't worry about any of that Sorry, listeners, you've got that image stuck in your head now. (laughs) Yes, welcome to our lives as biologists. (laughs) Just try not to gross yourself out constantly. Just don't think about it. (laughs) Okay, so on a completely unsmooth topic change from that wonderful, very rich topic, one day I've got to do like an adults-only podcast. You should, yeah. What does an average day at work look like for you? (laughs) well I think one of the things I love about my work is that 
there's not really an average day. So for example, today I had mostly meetings all day, which can be really dreary and dry. But today was awesome because I had meetings about projects and new collaborations. I spoke to someone in Norway. I spoke to someone in Korea. And all of the conversations were really exciting. They're about work we've done and work we might be able to do together. And so days like this I really love because they're really inspiring. They're all about planning and thinking and collaboration. So really cool. Tomorrow I'm getting up really early and I'm, I'm driving to a boat ramp in Brisbane and I'm getting on a boat and then I'm spending the whole day on an oyster farm where we're looking at different ways that we can maybe grow seaweed as well as oysters on this oyster farm. So we're going to be measuring all sorts of things and we'll definitely see turtles and dolphins and possibly a hammerhead shark and and lots of different fish. So we're, we're monitoring a whole lot of different things and seeing which seaweeds prefer different types of growth conditions. And then on Thursday, I'm giving a lecture. So it's really very varied. I think next week sometime I have to go to a prawn farm (laughs) where we also might grow seaweed. So it's really very diverse and I really like that about my job. It's not super predictable and it doesn't really get boring. It does sound like good fun. Do you get to get in the water a bit as well? Yes, I do. Most of the, probably a couple of times a month these days I get to go in the water. Before I got a job as a, a lecturer, I was in the water a lot more often. So I had a a research focused job before this research and teaching position that I have now. And so I was in the water most days and flying all around the country and sometimes other countries back when we could do that kind of thing freely and diving and snorkeling all the time. That was really fun, but also very tiring. So I've enjoyed this change for the last few years of, of doing a little bit less often, but it's still something I look forward to and really enjoy. I I find when I'm in the water, when I get to go out into the field, into the marine ecosystem, it's so inspiring and I get lots of new ideas and I just remember why I'm I'm doing this and why I'm working hard and, and why I love it all so much. I imagine also the energy that comes from the collaborators and even just collaborating with the different kinds of farmers and things as well and seeing, especially if they're excited and open to new ideas, like that's really cool too. It's amazing. And what I love about working with oyster farmers in particular is that they're out in the water every single day and they know so much about their area, their local site. And that information is just so golden. And I think it's something we've really lost in most parts of our society in the last couple of hundred years in Australia, at least. And it's something that I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people really had a great connection to their country and their sea country and a really, really deep understanding of how it changed and when and why and what that meant. And I just think that's so valuable and something we really need to get back in our lives because I think it'll really enhance our own lives and, and as I said, our own health, microbiomes, all that stuff. But it is, it's super inspiring talking to people who spend all their time in the environment and really know their patch of earth or water so well. It's wonderful. It sounds like such fun, to be honest. (laughs) It's really cool. Oyster farms are beautiful. I've never spent a lot of time on them until this project, to be honest. But they're really lovely. And and this one we're working at in particular is just in a very pristine environment. So there's so many animals around and it's gorgeous. One of the many things that I think plenty of people don't think about where oysters come from? 
like obviously the sea, but beyond that, like how they're grown and prawn farming. Never really thought much about that. Yeah, prawn farming is an interesting one and that's where seaweed can really solve potentially big environmental problems. So prawns and fish, you know, they produce a lot of waste and it's uh, got a lot of nitrogen in it, the waste that they produce. And so sometimes we can grow seaweeds on parts of the farm to strip that nitrogen out so that when the effluent from the prawn farms go back into the receiving waterway, so an estuary or a river or something like that, the seaweeds can basically filter that water and make it cleaner than it was when it came in. And so that's really important for prawn farmers because obviously they want to care for the environment that they're using and and that they're within. But also there's really strict regulations on what prawn farms can put back out into the waterways as well, which is great. And seaweed is potentially going to be a really big part of the solution for prawn farms and fish farms and other kinds of polluting industries that we all use and and rely on every day, like sewage treatment plants and things like that too. So it's exciting working on those kind of really applied projects where seaweed could potentially solve a really specific and important problem. And it could scale really easily as well. Potentially, yeah. So Maybe I'll check back in with you on on the prom farm situation in a couple of years and let you know how we're going. Definitely keep me updated. With regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, was there great use of seaweeds as materials? I'm definitely not an expert on that and not super comfortable commenting, I guess, but I think because there were lots of different and really diverse Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations and mobs all around the country. Their use of seaweed was really different as well. There are some researchers based at Deakin University working with some communities to help them piece back together knowledge of traditional seaweed use. But there's certainly lots and lots of evidence that some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities use seaweed heavily. I know the Boandic people in South Australia used kelp all the time to make vessels, to carry lobsters inland, to trade and things like that. But yeah, that's probably their stories better told by Boandic person and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people directly. Well, definitely. And it also would make sense that everyone would use everything differently and there would be access to different resources as well because obviously it's not like one seaweed all around Australia. No. Uh, There are some really lovely stories that are emerging as the research team in Deakin sit down and talk to people and they remember things and it's really lovely. And so I'd say that seaweed has played a big role in, in some communities for many thousands of years. And certainly overseas, in other places, Indigenous peoples have long and really important relationships with seaweed over many thousands of years too. Such an important resource and so many people are just like, ew, it's slimy. (laughs) (laughs) It can be really polarising. So one of the things that some of my colleagues in the seaweed research group did a couple of years ago was survey lots of people about seaweed and and they were primarily interested then whether people would consider eating it or using it in their everyday diet and it was really black and white you know people either really liked it and were really open to it and thought it was lovely and healthy and delicious 
or gross and slimy and disgusting. <laughs> it was not much in between there. It was really very polarizing issue in Australia. We're such funny people. <laughs> we are. You know, we've got a lot of potential though, I think. <laughs> we do, as does our seaweed. Absolutely. How have you ended up where you are now? Like, what was your path, say, from starting at high school? Were you always passionate about seaweed? No, no, definitely not. I've never found it disgusting, though. And I I remember pre-high school snorkeling and swimming with seaweed in the sea and, and really liking it and, in fact, playing with what we call Neptune's necklace with my sisters and my dad and shooting it at each other on the beach. And that was kind of a part of, you know, my family history and, and my growing up. Seaweed is knitted in there, not intentionally, but no, it was never an ambition to work on seaweed. I always wanted to work in the sea, definitely. That's something I can pin back to my early childhood, thanks to a pretty cool, potentially cliched marine biologist experience with a dolphin. I think I was about eight years old and I was body surfing. It was a new skill for me, so I was enthusiastically practicing it out in the waves and usually closed my eyes when I was body surfing, but this one time for some reason opened my eyes and looked to my left and there was a dolphin in the wave with me and it was huge. It was like three metres long and I don't know how tall I was at eight, but certainly a lot <laughs> a lot shorter than three metres. And it was looking at me and I was looking at it and we totally had a moment. And I think what got me about that moment was that it was interested in me. I felt very seen by an animal and I didn't think I was that interesting actually. And now I still don't think I am or was because it, it only looked at me for a couple of seconds and then completely lost interest and swam away very quickly. And then I felt very small and really bad at swimming all of a sudden once the dolphin kind of flicked its tail one millimetre and was just gone. But it was really, really cool. And it, it just filled me with so many uh, interesting feelings of curiosity. And I just wanted to know more about this thing and, and where it lived. And so that definitely set me on a course towards marine science. And certainly my goal was not to work on seaweed, but I think, so in high school, I definitely chose science subjects because I wanted to do science and I was good at English. That was another thing that, that was surprising at the time. And I didn't necessarily want to be good at English, but I always found it really easy and creative writing in particular and comprehension and stuff like that. So English and science, I guess, were my, my strong suit. Maths, not so much. But then for some reason, when I finished high school, I got offered a scholarship to do environmental engineering at uni. And they were trying really hard to get women into that at the time. And I convinced myself or someone convinced me, I don't really remember, that it would be much better qualification for me to get a job from. So I, I started doing it. And I hated it. I hated engineering. <laughs> but because it was environmental engineering, there was biology and environmental science components. And I really loved those. And I did really well at those. And I really tanked at the engineering subjects. And so I just kind of spent a moment reflecting, like, what am I doing? I wanted to do marine science, you know. So I just changed back to my passion and started doing really well. And in third year, I started volunteering. So I was a volunteer diver, which is really hard to do now. I think it's still possible, but it's really hard to be a volunteer scuba diver. And I volunteered for my friend who was doing an honours project on 
fish actually, but fish that ate seaweed. And it was a really cool project and we had to go diving and and set up these cages to stop fish from eating some seaweeds but allow them to eat others. And it was just really, really fun. And I guess that experience and, and other subjects in my degree that were all ecology subjects got me really into ecology. It's this kind of really elegant way of asking questions of any ecosystem or organism. And so I think I fell in love with that particular science and that practice and that approach to asking questions and evaluating information critically assessing it and then communicating it. And the group, I suppose, that my friend did her on his project were really into seaweeds and I started working with them. And, you know, the rest the rest is history. We're kind of now 20 years later, I suppose, almost, maybe 18 years from my honours project back in the day. And, yeah, I'm still, the more I learn about seaweeds, the more exciting I find them and And the more important I realise they are in our ecosystems too. So I'm really scared about losing most of the giant kelp and losing other species of seaweeds that that I've been part of teams that have noticed other types of seaweeds disappearing as well in my career. So I'm really dedicated to restoring those seaweed populations where we can because as much as I like them, they're actually just really important. So they provide food and habitats for thousands of species of fish and invertebrates. And they basically underpin coastal marine ecosystems. And without them, it's really scary to think of all the things we'll lose, not just, you know, food, but also jobs, commercial fishing. In some places, they provide kind of physical protection to coastlines. It's really terrifying to try to imagine Australia without seaweed forests. So I do think that, that the work we do with seaweeds is really important and bringing seaweeds back to places where we've lost them, I see as my mission now. That's a big mission. (laughs) It is, but we're we're making progress. So Operation Crayweed is one of the projects I was involved in in Sydney, and that's really successfully bringing back a a whole species, crayweed, that we talked about earlier, to Sydney where it used to be really dominant but disappeared in the 1980s due to sewage pollution. And so now that water quality has improved there, over the last 10 years or so, we've been able to reforest Sydney's reefs with crayweed. And we're looking to start some similar projects up here on the Sunshine Coast where not crayweed but other fucoids, so seaweeds that are like cousins of crayweed, again, used to form these really dense, beautiful, productive underwater forests right off the coast here on the Sunshine Coast. But in the 1970s, when a whole lot of urban development happened along this coastline, they disappeared and they haven't come back. So one of the big projects we're interested in up here on the Sunshine Coast at the moment is is to restore those and to work as much as we can with the local communities. So recruit people on this coastline as citizen scientists and get them out there in the water, helping us restore seaweeds. And, you know, we hope that maybe by doing that, they'll rewild and boost their own microbiomes as well and maybe get a little health kick out of coming out with us and and trying to restore the health of our coast as well. That's fantastic. And I think it's especially challenging with anything underwater because it's out of mind for a lot of people. And the more that everyone can be involved, not just like a handful of like lucky people who get to do it as their job, like that the word will get out. And I think that's a really important part of it as well. The more people who appreciate seaweed. Seaweed, but just 
nature I think more broadly and there's definitely something that we hear all the time Amelia from our volunteers and our citizen scientists who've come out with us on Operation Crayweed but other projects as well even though they're really different people from really different backgrounds and walks of life what they say to us is kind of remarkably similar and it's that they feel really good after doing this work they feel energized they feel like they're doing something worthwhile that you know they feel well they feel really good and happy and healthy after coming out and and restoring seaweed with us and I think there's something in that and I think that by physically reconnecting with nature and doing something positive to help it out because we've done a lot of damage collectively you know nobody in particular as an individual but as a species we've done an awful lot of damage and it's to our own detriment and I think that you know citizen science is absolutely pathway towards fixing that fixing the environment and I really think we'll start to see really tangible benefits for our own well-being as well so this is a great call to action people if you are in a situation where you are able to go out and help with citizen science and get out there and do the things get your hands dirty yeah get it get your hands dirty Absolutely. I do think it helps. And if you're on the Sunshine Coast or you're keen to come up to the Sunshine Coast at some point next year for a couple of weeks or something like that, you can register as a citizen scientist uh, on our website, the Seaweed Research Group. That's cool. We'll, We'll include a link to that one in the show notes. Awesome. Is there any advice you'd give to a young person or a young Alex who's considering a career in either seaweed research or like seaweed entrepreneurship? Advice. Yes. I think, you know, never let anyone tell you that environmental science or studying the environment isn't important. It really is. It's so important and it's really worthwhile and you should definitely invest all the time and energy it will take to do it. Seaweed science or any kind of science is a wonderful thing to spend your time on. Spending your time on learning as much as you can about our world and our place in it, I think, is an incredible privilege and a great joy and something I'd encourage anyone to do in any capacity, either as a job or, as you say, as a volunteer or even just getting out into nature when you can, going for a walk, learning a bit about the place you're in, you know not just observing it, but but learning about the organisms you're seeing and interacting with, because it's just lovely. It it brings joy. And I think it's, it's just a really good thing to do for your mental health. As far as seaweed entrepreneurship goes, I think there's a lot of potential. And in Australia at the moment, there's a lot of people trying really hard to grow seaweed. I think it's going to take some time for the industry to, to kick off. And, you know, farming anything is really hard work. So, so long as you factor that in and you're prepared to put in the hard yards, I think in the future, there's going to be lots of opportunities for seaweed businesses in Australia. And you may have to do a bit of outreach yourself in getting people on board and moving past the ew, slimy factor. But the more of you doing that, the better, surely. Absolutely. And I think the more research we do on particular types of seaweeds and the health benefits they could give us if we eat them, environmental benefits they can provide us when we grow them in the sea and other things will be really interesting and really contribute importantly to the development of that industry and the way we message about seaweeds and what they can do for us and what they already do for us in the future. So much potential. 
Is there anything that you wish the general public understood or are there any myths about anything we've talked about that you'd like to take this opportunity to squash? I guess this is a great opportunity to talk about something that I feel people misunderstand about scientists a lot. And this has been really highlighted lately to me by the COVID situation and the mistrust, a lot of the mistrust in in science and recommendations by scientists. And, you know, a lot of people have suggested to me that, you know, the medical scientists speaking to the press are in bed with big pharma or things like this. And I don't know, I guess something I'd love to talk to people about is just that scientists mostly just work really, really hard. Mostly they work on their own. Mostly they get paid adequately, but, you know, it's not a job you ever get into because you want to be really wealthy or famous. You get into it because you're really passionate about the subject matter and you're really driven to contribute to what we understand about something. And so I see scientists being kind of really wrongly accused of having dubious allegiances or different types of motivations to what they're presenting. And and I think almost all the time, scientists are really just genuinely trying to understand the situation by using their science and, and communicate that in the best way they know how. And it's something that I've experienced a lot in the climate change space. So I've studied a lot of impacts of climate change in terms of seaweed loss and seaweed diseases, seaweed herbivory, things like that. And oftentimes when I'm giving a public lecture or a talk or writing a blog or whatever it is, there's always someone who kind of pipes up about this climate change conspiracy. And it's very frustrating, you know, because there's really completely independent groups of scientists in totally different countries all over the world finding more or less the same thing over and over again in, in all sorts of different systems. And it's, it's not a joke. It's not a, a con. It's just really scary science. And the more time we spend questioning the motivations and the allegiances of the sciences, the more time we're just wasting. You know, we really need to start translating this science and putting it into action and changing our policies, changing our behaviours and fixing the cause of these things that are creating so many problems for everybody. So I think that's what I'd love to use this opportunity to communicate about. Scientists are very data-driven. They tend not to be emotionally involved in, in any particular outcome. In fact, most of the people I know working in the climate change space really hope they're wrong about all of this, you know, but I don't think they are. And I think the time of debating is gone, long gone, and we really need to start taking that science on board and, and changing things both from the bottom up, there's lots of things each of us can do on a micro individual scale to make things better. But we really need top down leadership on this as well. We really need to change what we do as a country, as an economy, and do things better and more sustainably so that we all still have a pretty nice way of life in the next couple of decades. Because at the moment, that's really under threat. Personally, I find it somewhat interesting how we tend to pick and choose which scientists we don't believe. We have a tendency as a society to question the scientists who are telling us things that we just really don't want to hear. And we're cool with the scientists who will tell us, oh, you need to drink a glass of red wine every night for the antioxidants or something. Or if if science says it's it's good to eat a piece of chocolate, then fantastic. I'm all on board with that piece of science. But But if it's the kind of science that is quite clear that very bad things are going to happen to society and you need to actually change some of the things that you find comfortable right now, we don't tend to like that. 
It's hard and, you know, that's where leadership becomes really important and I think that's been demonstrated well in certain places at certain times. You know, when there is a crisis, we have to make drastic changes really rapidly and it's possible and there's mechanisms that appear out of nowhere to make it possible and when there's strong leadership, people go along with it. Okay, when the messaging gets confusing and inconsistent, then people get confused and apathetic and angry and feel like they're being misled or that they're being given information that's that's not true. So messaging is really important and leadership's really important. And I think when you have both of those things right, people are really capable of of taking the information on board and making the right decisions. But when it sounds like there's confusion or disagreement, then people obviously err on the side of not doing anything because it's very inconvenient, as you said, and, and confronting to change some of the things that need to change. So that leadership and really clear, consistent messaging is super important. And I think we've seen that demonstrated in lots of really good and really bad ways during this global pandemic situation. It's been very interesting to watch. This is going to be taken apart in so many PhDs, like for decades to come people will analyze the social media strategies and the ads absolutely yeah it's going to be i mean it is just super interesting now and it's i agree a lot of people are going to spend entire careers and lifetimes figuring out what went wrong and what went right so hopefully we can do it a bit better next time and just to reiterate to the listeners scientists are not in it for some sort of secret money club There's no secret benefit to telling people like some really hard realities about the future. They don't go home with warm fuzzies and a a Jaguar or something. There was a a time in my PhD when my family just refused to go to the beach to me because I kept ruining things for them. You know, I mean, (laughs) it sucks sometimes, but it's just, it's evidence-based and it's data-driven and it's about sharing and comparing And I love the process because you can prove yourself wrong and you often do and you prove each other wrong. And in fact, scientists are brutal at each other. You know, you have to get everything you you want to publish through peer review and people aren't kind, you know. If you've done anything wrong, then you have to go back and do it again. And so it is kind of, it's not a belief, it's not a a faith-based system. It's a really different way of thinking and it's, specifically and purposely designed to be proven wrong at any moment and that's part of learning to be a scientist all these skills are things you learn in your training and it's really important and so you've got to know that whenever a scientist is standing up and saying something out loud they've kind of checked and double checked and triple checked and asked their friends to check and double check and triple check everything they're saying to you so it's definitely worth your while to take it seriously and listen they're not in it for any other reason as other than to make a contribution. I think that's a very important message. And unfortunately, probably the people who are listening to this podcast, they're probably the choir and we need to get this message a little bit further than the choir. <laughs> yes. And I think what we're seeing in our society at the moment, again, is this polarization. You know, there's a lot of people who are really struggling to know what to believe at the moment. And I've got to say, this is a great time for you to just listen to scientists, listen to experts in their field. Don't listen to other people. Listen to people who've spent, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years studying the thing that you want to know about. 
And so sticking to, to those sources of information where people have been trained not only to collect data, but to analyze it and interpret it correctly, it's really easy to misinterpret data. So you need scientific training to do that properly and then also to communicate it. So if, if you are confused or you've got a friend or a family member who's confused, you, know, you can remind them that it's really easy to misinterpret and misrepresent data if you haven't been properly trained how to analyse data, which most people who aren't scientists haven't. And so it's a good way to suggest, I suppose, to people who are confused, like listen to the scientists, go to their personal websites, follow them on social media, you know, or, or websites that governments have that are informed by universities or groups of scientists. That's the best way to get your information about certainly this pandemic. And of course, people who are confused about climate change, the best place to send them is to the IPCC website, where they produce synthesis reports on all the science done by all the scientists all over the world every few years. And they've just released one really recently, the assessment report number six, and it's really scary. So it's a great place to send people if they're looking for somewhere to get information that's been checked, double-checked, triple-checked by hundreds of scientists all over the world multiple times. That's the kind of really conservative summary of climate data that we have on Earth at the moment. And it can't be understated how much filtering and analysis and everything proofreading, et cetera, that goes into those IPCC reports. Like anything that you think you've done, like no, <laughs> the, the amount of red pen those things get covered with. Yes, that's what I've heard. I've only been really peripherally involved so far, but I've heard, you know, I've just described the normal science process is really brutal. Apparently the IPCC report is insanely brutal. So the only things that you know, everyone can really agree on, make it into that report. And that actually scares me because that suggests that it's extremely conservative in its predictions. And indeed, if you look back from the first report to now, you'll see that we are tracking well and truly along the worst case scenario trajectories <laughs> the whole time, because those reports are actually really conservative in what they say, because everyone is so cautious about what they're going to actually put in there, because it goes through so many stages of peer review and critical analysis. And moving on to possibly more positive things, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? I think just that, you know, seaweed is cool. Forests underwater are just as important as forests on the land. We forget often about our underwater life because, as you said, it's out of sight, so it's largely out of mind. But actually the ocean is really, really important. We rely on it every day for oxygen that we breathe, for food that we eat, and for, you know, the weather that we kind of enjoy and, and rely on to keep our climate temperate. So it's really important. So I just encourage everyone to learn as much as you can, take any opportunities you have to get out at the coast or out on a boat or, or whatever it is you like to do. Because I think not only is it a great experience, I really do believe that it's good for you. And I hope in the next couple of years to be able to show you some data to support that idea. And I think the more time you can spend in nature, the better for you personally. But I think it'll also really help you reconnect with your environment. 
stop thinking about it as an external and optional thing. You know, we're part of our environment and we've really got to start looking after it better to ensure that we and our kids and our grandkids still have a healthy, livable environment in the next couple hundred years. And I think one of the things that's going to help me with that after this episode is the thought that when I'm going out and reconnecting a little bit with nature, I'm not just doing it for me, but I'm also doing it for my microbiome. It's not just about me anymore. Absolutely. It's you and and all your little friends. (laughs) You and your hollow biome. I want to keep them healthy. You know, it's like, even if I have a bad day, it's not just about me. No, it's so interesting and there's so much amazing research coming out about your microbiome now. I think in in our lifetimes, Amelia, we'll see a a real transformation in the way we look after ourselves by, you know, changing our habits and our diets to make our microbes happy. I'm looking forward to it. It's exciting (laughs) and probably tasty. Definitely. Seaweed's tasty. And I'm sure seaweed's good for microbiomes. I have no data to support that yet, but, you know, <laughs> it's my, my gut feeling, pardon the science pun, it's getting <laughs> To wrap up, have you got a shout-out or a virtual high-five that you'd like everyone listening to give to someone or an organisation or just anyone who you think's awesome? Uh, at the moment, just a big virtual high-five for everyone working in in hospitals and the medical industry and looking after people and showing up to work. I know it's really tough for people in Melbourne and and Sydney at the moment. And I just am really grateful to all the the medical researchers who've worked so hard in the last year and a half to come up with a vaccine, like super speedy research there and research translation. I'm super impressed. And yeah, just a big high five to everyone in hospitals looking after people and, and putting themselves at risk. I think that's amazing think you're awesome they are and also a small shout out to people in canberra who also now unfortunately locked down but all the critical care workers deserve so many covid safe high fives I, yep yes I'm so grateful hard work absolutely and in normal circumstances that's a tough gig you know yeah this is tough just like tough with extra tough absolutely Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Alex. This has been incredibly educational on multiple counts and I'm really excited for what is going to happen in the future of seaweed. Me too. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk about it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.